parents who want obedience and who are just focused on, I want my child to salute when I ask for it, they'll get obedience when the parent's there, but they're not going to get that same kind of good, socially acceptable behavior if there's no one there to demand it. Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to today's episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today, we're going to dig into the literature on something I've been doing a bit intuitively for a while now, which is on setting goals for our parenting. Something that Dr. Rebecca Babcock-Fenergy said during our conversation on intergenerational trauma really stuck with me. She said, nobody sets out to be a terrible parent. (laughs) In other words, all parents are doing the best that they can. Now, everyone has parenting goals, whether we've fully articulated them or whether they're circulating somewhere in our subconscious that are formed by relationships we had with our parents and half-remembered bits of parenting books and blog posts. But what if we could bring all this stuff out of our subconscious and articulate it so that we can work towards achieving these goals? I'm not saying we should set goals like by next month, my introverted son is going to love going to parties. But if we understand what high level qualities we want our children to have as they grow up, we'll have a much better chance of actually achieving those goals. So here with us today to think through all this is Dr. Joan Grusek, who's Professor Emerita at the University of Toronto and has spent decades thinking about and researching this topic. Dr. Grusek received her BA from the University of Toronto and her PhD from Stanford University before she returned to Toronto. She notes on her website that effective parenting does not involve simply the application of specific strategies and techniques or the adoption of specific styles of interaction, but the interaction of parenting strategies and children's features like temperament, age, sex, and mood, as well as something called the domain that the child is operating in that we're going to discuss a lot more today. So don't expect to come out of this episode with a tidy template for goal setting, but rather a framework to think about the goals that you have for your child and some ideas on how to apply it. Welcome, Dr. Grusek. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, let's go back to, well, not the beginning here, but kind of a long time ago now. Okay. So you and one of your students did a study that has become something of a classic. I think it was published in 98, in which you looked at parents' goals when they imagined interactions with a child that could lead to conflict in a short vignette or in a previous experience with their own child. And I think you found that the parent used different strategies to work with their child, depending on whether the parent's center of control was themselves, the child, or their relationship with the child. Can you tell us some more about that study? Well, I think what we were trying to do, Paul Hastings and I, in in that study was to look at the situation where a child has misbehaved and the parent is responding to that misbehavior, presumably 
wanting to improve things for the future. But we wanted to emphasize that there isn't one response that can be made or that all parents make and that parents have different things that they want to achieve in this same situation. So some parents, or at some time and at other times, some parents may just want immediate compliance. They want good behavior. The child is throwing a temper tantrum. They want the child to stop. Sometimes, and those were what we called parent-centered goals, sometimes parents are interested in teaching a value or in trying to do something that will ensure or make it less likely that the child will misbehave in this way in the future. Or sometimes they're focused on the child's emotional needs and why, why is the child so distressed and so upset or what's bothering my child? Or how does this look from my child's perspective? How does my child see this situation? Maybe I should take that into account when I'm responding. And the, uh, the last goal that we identified, and this was as asking parents, what are the goals that you have when you're interacting with your children in a situation where you want to change their behavior? The last goal we call relationship-centered. And basically, this is just a, a desire on the part of, of parents, uh, particularly mothers, I must say. Mothers reported this more often than fathers did just to make sure that everybody ends up feeling happy and satisfied with the outcome of the interaction. Okay. And so what strategies did parents use in each of these kinds of situations? How did they differ? Uh, they differed in the, I just want you to obey me uh, focus, the parent-centered focus. It was mostly some sort of power assertive approach, taking advantage of greater physical strength to move the child physically out of the situation or just to speak sharply to the child and say, don't do that. So there were more of what we call these powers, assertive uh, interventions. In the case of child-centered goals, it was more some power assertion, some say setting of rules, this is not the way we behave. But with an explanation or with reasoning or with some attempt to explain to the child why this was not acceptable behavior. Okay. In the case of relationship-centered goals, it would be more like uh, taking the child's perspective, trying to convey to the child that the parent understood what the problem was, even though the behavior needs to be changed. And... Uh, to see if they could work out some sort of compromise if that seemed appropriate. Okay. And so it, it occurs to me that parents' goals probably shift. <laughs> the strategies Absolutely. that they use probably shift depending on the situation. And so I'm thinking if the child has a tantrum at home, then maybe I can use more child-centered and relationship-centered strategies like Absolutely. staying calm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in, in the grocery store, uh, it's more likely to be uh, parent-centered. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, so what I'm curious about then is, firstly, the effectiveness of these strategies. Is it just as effective to say, you know, to, to use the power assertion method in the grocery store, even if you wouldn't do that if the child was at home? And secondly, you know, is it ever a good thing to use these strategies or should we be using more child-centered, relationship-centered strategies? 
Well, I think that a combination of child-centered, relationship-centered strategies are probably best. And when we get to talking later on about domains, I'll explain why this is the case. Parents who want obedience and who are just focused on, I want my child to salute when I ask for it, they'll get obedience when the parent's there, but they're not going to get that same kind of good socially acceptable behavior if there's no one there to demand it. So although obviously picking a child up and taking them out of the supermarket when they're behaving badly is probably about the only thing you can do, in the final analysis, it's the other relationship-centered and child-centered goals that probably are going to pay off. Mm, Okay. And so that leads me to something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is what goals parents have for parenting their children. And I'm thinking both at a high level and a, a sort of daily interaction level. So in the US particularly, there's a high value placed on independence of people of all ages. And uh, so that might be a high level parenting goal that a lot of parents have is to raise a child who's independent. But there's also a really big trend even beyond helicopter parenting to what I think is now known as lawnmower parenting, where the parent (laughs) attempts to mow down any potential obstacles in the child's way. And it seems to me as though that kind of runs counter to the goal of developing independence. So I'm curious about what you've noticed about uh, the goals that parents state about their child rearing kind of on a day-to-day level when, you know, obedience isn't necessarily a bad thing in all cases and these higher level goals and how parents' interactions with their children affect these goals. Well, I think a problem here is that we as parents often do one thing manifest one kind of behavior, but we talk in a different way about it. And so we send out confusing signals. So we may value independence. We may talk about independence. We may talk about its importance. But then if we behave in a different way, in a way in which we're encouraging a child to be dependent, then It's a very confusing situation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about the cause and effect direction of this. And a fairly recent study that was done in 2012 found that parents in a Taiwanese sample with children who expressed negative emotions were more likely to be authoritarian, which means to use these power and coercive strategies to achieve compliance. But the study didn't help us to understand whether having emotional children leads parents to be more coercive or whether coercive parenting leads to the child expressing more emotions. So I'm curious about whether you know of any research that's been done that can help us to understand this direction of causality. There's a lot of research. I think the direction of causality is a question that every researcher Mm. faces. There are a number of methodological approaches that at least try to deal with the question of is the parent affecting the child or is the child's behavior driving the parent? So one way of trying at least to get a little bit better, greater insight into this issue is to do what we call longitudinal studies. So we take measures at two points in time. So let's say you're interested in the effect of a given parenting behavior on the child, you would collect data about the child's behavior at two time points, uh, one month apart, six months apart, 
two years apart, whatever, five years apart, you collect that data and you have measured the parent's behavior at the first time point so that if you find a change in the child's behavior that is related to or correlated with the child's behavior at the first time point, then you have a little bit more information, a little bit more permission for suggesting that there might be a causal relationship. That's one approach. Another approach is to do an experiment, but this is very hard in the mm. child rearing research area. Uh, yeah, I can't tell you to spank <laughs> your child and then tell another parent to to speak kindly see what to, the, to their their child and see what happens. So, not too many experiments can be done, but intervention studies are another way of trying to get at some notion about whether the parenting behavior is having an effect on the child's behavior so that presumably in an intervention study you would have one group that received training in responding to the child's wishes or whatever the variable was that you thought was important. And another group was usually a wait list group because you think your intervention is going to work. So you come back, you measure the two groups at the beginning of one group's intervention. And then with the wait list control, there shouldn't be any change in their behavior in comparison to the group that's received mm -hmm. the intervention. So that is another way. I think that ultimately the answer to your question is that parenting and child rearing is bidirectional. Mm -hmm. Parents influence children and children influence parents. There's a recent study by a Swedish group, for example, in which they looked at direction of effect using a longitudinal study with Swedish adolescents. And there they found a much greater effect of the adolescents on the parents' behavior hmm. than vice versa. Now, this is an older group. Adolescents are something different from younger children. And I think there's, again, lots of evidence that parents do have an effect on the parenting has an effect on the behavior of younger children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But as I say, I think it really, it's both ways. Okay. Parents are people too, right? <laughs> they have feelings, they respond to reinforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not surprising yep. that they can be affected yeah. as well. We have goals and failures and <laughs> all right, these things just right, like children as well. Right. Yeah. So staying with the topic of using these different techniques, I think that parents often use these parent-centered techniques when you just kind of want short-term compliance, but maybe they use more child and relationship-centered techniques when they want longer-term compliance and perhaps even a later date. And I read one study that tested the techniques that mothers use to get their child to sort out some spoons and forks when there are some attractive toys close by and found that when the mothers tried to instruct their child to comply, the child actually resisted complying and they were more likely to say something like, do it yourself. <laughs> right. But when the mothers knew they were going to have to leave the child unattended to sort the cutlery, they were more likely to reason with the child, which turned out to be more effective. And so the researcher concluded that sometimes we do choose, we would make a mental choice about how we'll ask our child to do something. But sometimes we don't necessarily do that 
we don't go through that process, our automatic pilot just comes on. And in those cases, we might use more of the parent-centered techniques, which are less effective. And so I'm wondering, you know, where does this internal autopilot come from? And can we and should we reset it so that our autopilot is more beneficial for both our child and for us? Well, I think, yes, we can reset our autopilots. It's obviously easier just to tell a child to do something. Yeah. Reasoning, explanation, even thinking about the relationship, that takes a lot of effort. Mm. And especially if you're stressed, you don't have time or, or whatever. So it, the, I suppose the automatic pilot comes from just wanting to get things done and move on. So I think, however, the literature, the research certainly shows that investing some time in explanation and in reasoning and in taking the child's perspective uh, pays off. Certainly what we know is that parents who rely a lot on power assertion, that is, who don't reason, who simply say this is the way you do it, they get obedience when they're around, but they don't, as in the case of this study, for example, they don't get much obedience when they're not around. Yeah. And I think there's also, parents will tend to use more controlling techniques when they think that the child intended to do some harm uh, rather than when the harm couldn't have been foreseen or managed by the child. But I think that a lot of parents and maybe even researchers hold expectations of the child that aren't necessarily developmentally appropriate. I was looking at one study where the researchers asked parents in a vignette how they would discipline a child who ate the cupcakes that he knew were intended for a party. And my first thought was, why would you leave a child's favorite dessert out unattended when they could be tempted to eat them? And so I'm thinking, you know, sometimes we see a behavior in our child and we think, oh, the child can do this now. And we expect them to do it all the time when in fact their ability to do it may be coming and going. They're still mastering the issue. And I think if we just lowered our expectations of the level of self-control that children should have, that we think they should have, that the, you know, the amount of work they should do around the house and that kind of thing, that we wouldn't see as much of this misbehavior that we need to sort of discipline as it were. Do you see it in the same way? Well, perhaps in a slightly different way. Okay. I think that when we try to teach children not to take cupcakes that are sitting out there tempting them, uh, we want to make sure that the reasons that we give them for that make sense. And the reasons mm -hmm. that make sense to an eight-year-old who should be able to resist temptation, I guess, are very different from the reasons we give to a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. So we have to be sure that we are being convincing given the developmental capacities of the child with whom we're dealing. That's one thing. Taking the perspective of the child is another really important thing. Takes a little bit of effort. How does this look to my child? So I suppose if you Look at your cupcakes, you know your child, you know how much they love cupcakes. You may decide, taking the child's perspective, that this is quite an unreasonable thing to expect of them. So you need to know your child. How do you get to know your child? You get to know your child by talking to them, asking them questions. You need to take the perspective of your child so that you can understand how they're thinking and feeling at a given time. You make 
need to make sure that your reasoning and your explanations make sense, they're age appropriate, they're sex appropriate, that they're act appropriately. What's the good reason for not eating the cupcakes? Because I spent a lot of time baking them and we need to keep them for company and maybe you can have one with the company. So I think you don't give up, depending on how important it is, but I think there are a number of techniques that you can use in order to find out whether or not this is an appropriate thing for you to be asking. Mm-hmm. So that reminds me that something that one of my favorite authors, uh, Alfie Cohn, has said, which is attribute the best possible motivation consistent with the behavior. So it seems as though we could think of our child as being willfully naughty or deliberately eating a cupcake that they knew they shouldn't have. Or we could see it as they just don't have the self-control yet. Even if I told her, don't eat the cupcakes, she can't physically, mentally resist (laughs) the urge to take the cupcake and eat it. So do you see it in the same way? So I think I, I see it a bit differently. And that is when you have a child who is misbehaving, not doing something that's socially acceptable, then you explain to them why they need to behave in a, in a different sort of way. You don't keep on explaining. I mean, you have to, at some point, know that the child understands what it is they're supposed to do. And then you don't just keep on reasoning. Then you start to set rules, and rules have consequences, and you know why it is that you're not supposed to eat cupcakes or you're not supposed to hit your brother or you're supposed to share your toys, then once you are sure of the child's knowledge, that is then the time when you start to impose consequences for their behavior, their actions. Okay. All right. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about something that I know you've been working on a lot lately. (laughs) One of the key concepts that I got out of reading your research on how we support children in achieving these socialization goals is the idea of the domain approach and that parents' responses need to appropriately match the domain the child is operating in. Can you tell us some more about that, please? Yes, I will. The domain of socialization approach that I've been writing about lately, really emerges from the fact that there seem to be so many disparate approaches to advice about child rearing. I mean, it's very confusing. One person will tell you to do this and another person will tell you to do that. <laughs> and, uh, and no wonder parents tear their hair out. This is an attempt to say that there are different ways of getting children to learn social values and to behave in accord with those social values. And depending on the domain or the situation in which the child is operating, this requires a different kind of parenting intervention to achieve the same outcome, which is is acceptance of the value. So my co-authors and I talk about five different domains which require five different kinds of interaction with the child. The first is the protection domain. This is really kind of a basic fundamental parent-child interaction where the child feels distressed or upset or unsafe 
then the appropriate intervention there is for the parent to comfort the child, to protect the child. What happens is that eventually the child has to learn how to comfort themselves, and they do that by observing the behavior that the parent uses, and the parent may make suggestions for how they can comfort themselves. They then become able to cope. They develop empathy or ability to experience the distress of others and to behave in a pro-social, positive way. So it's in the protection domain then that children also come to trust that their parents have their best interests in mind. These are the people who look after me. These are the people, this is when parents do do it. These are the people who comfort me. And so I trust them. And when they ask me to do something, I will. Okay. That sounds a lot like attachment theory. It is attached. It's straight yeah. attachment theory. Okay. Got so it. So that's one theory. Well, I guess what the domain approach does is now it brings it in along with other theories. So mm-hmm. a second one is, and what I consider to be sort of the basis of the parent-child relationship, the second domain is reciprocity, which is a really interesting one. This is what happens when a child asks or makes a reasonable, reasonable request of the parent, okay? And I understand, I underline reasonable. (laughs) When this happens and when parent and child are in this kind of parent is accommodating, the child becomes more accommodating. It's just a basic feature of human behavior that we reciprocate. And so, again, there's considerable evidence that when parents comply with children's reasonable requests, children are more inclined to comply with their parents' presumably reasonable requests. And so you get this exchange going. Eleanor Maccabee, who is a developmental psychologist who really first started talking about this reciprocal relationship with respect to compliance in the, in the early 80s, she likened it to putting money in the bank Mm-hmm. So if you build up this relationship of being compliant, wanting to play silly games with your child. Okay, so mom, let's sit down and watch this, what to the child is a really interesting video, but what is to the parent a totally boring video. But <laughs> you know, being able to comply with his reasonable request makes it more likely that in the future when the parent says, will you start sharing your toys with your sister, more likely that you'll get what's known as willing compliance. It's not forced. It's not because the parent is being parent-centered and standing there and saying, do this. It's because they're into an exchange relationship. Yeah. I think I remember a study that Maccabee did in the early 80s about she asked parents to sit with their child and basically do what the child asked related to play and, you know, just engage in child-directed play. And the children who did that were more likely to clean up when the parent asked them to clean up. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, that was the first measure. Yeah. So it's super practical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and parents. then, there, you know, I mean, this happens a lot, obviously, in the play situation. Mm-hmm. And it's It's difficult. It's a lot easier, I think, to comfort a child who's in distress than it is Mm -hmm. to do something really boring. 
Like, yeah. you know, how many times do I have to play with this cash register? Uh, <laughs> this is a, a boring activity, but you've got to remember that it's an activity that really pays off in the future. Yeah. But there are many studies now that also indicate that just when there's a back and forth, when you observe parents and children interacting and they're laughing, there's positive affect when they're taking part together in routines that they're in sync, essentially. Yeah. And when you're in sync, then that means if I ask you to do something, you won't stop to think, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm being forced to do this. You say, well, it's just, it's natural. This is the way we operate. Mm -hmm. So that's the the second domain. Yeah. And sorry, before we move on, I wonder if we could just detour for a minute into external consequences. What would happen if the parent says, clean up your toys or else? <laughs> what kind of impact does that have on the reciprocity domain? Well, it shouldn't be necessary. Yeah. If it is necessary, <laughs> then, it, then presumably there isn't enough money in the bank. Okay. I thought the, you know, the other side of that question is if your child reciprocates and you say, oh, thank you, that was fabulous, I really appreciate it, that that may be harmful too, because you're mm -hmm. you're moving it from some kind of intrinsically motivated yes. action to an externally motivated action. And once you do that, you break down the, this whole exchange relationship. Yeah. So it's a fine balance. <laughs> well, I guess so. Sometimes rewards work and often they uh, they don't work. Yeah. Yeah, we've definitely looked at a lot of research on that. Okay, so okay. I interrupted you. You were going on to control, okay. I think. <laughs> right. So, but I see protection and reciprocity as sort of the base relationship mm -hmm. uh, domains. Got it. Then we come into the domain that everybody is most seems to be most interested in, and that's the control domain. What happens when your child does something bad? And this is where you get into supporting the child's autonomy, not making them feel forced to do things, providing reasons, making sure that what you're doing is also the reasons that you are offering are appropriate to the child's particular misdeed. Uh, there's a, a whole raft, don't be too strict, don't be too harsh. Make sure though that the contingencies are clear so there are certain ways of dealing with the control domain when the child is misbehaved that work better than other ways. Then there are two other domains, which I think have a lot of advantages. We don't know as much about them because everybody's really control is pressing. You've got to do something about your child's misdeed. That's why you are really interested in, in the kinds of directives and suggestions that people make. The other two domains, which I call guided learning and group participation. So what do they mean? Well, the guided learning is just talking to your child, taking advantage of opportunities that might exist to talk about values. You see someone, someone homeless person lying in the doorway and your child says, why is he lying in the doorway? This provides an opportunity to start to talk about people who are less fortunate and what can be done for those less fortunate people. Reading stories in which you talk about people's emotions 
are another example of how guided learning can help children learn values. The important thing about guided learning is it has to be scaffolded to the child's abilities. So this comes right back to the a basic issue, which is always has to do with, does the child see the value as intrinsically motivated? If it's scaffolded, if, it, if the child ar- arrives at a certain point of view through careful conversation that meets the child's current way of thinking, then the child is going to come to accept the outcome as his or her own. So I think guided learning takes effort, just like reciprocity takes more effort. But again, the research suggests that it pays off, that telling stories to children, that talking with them about these issues and trying to guide the conversation in a way that opens up new ways of thinking, that this is a very useful procedure for teaching values to children. The last, the group participation domain, is observational learning, watching what other people are doing, watching what your parents are doing, playing video games, watching violent television, not hanging out with the best exemplars of positive values. So observing and then participating. So we know there's a a lot of work, for example, that suggests that adolescents or young children who are working together, who are volunteering, for example, who are with a group of people engaging in some sort of positive interaction, that these is another very effective way to learn values. So those are the five domains. Three of them have to do with specific learning and two of them have to do more with the kind of basic relationship between parent and child. And as I said at the beginning, the domain in which the child is operating, is the child upset? Has the child asked for a reasonable favor is the child misbehaving has an opportunity just presented itself for some exchange reminiscence is another example of guided learning talking about things that happened a couple of weeks ago you're no longer in the discipline or the control domain but you're in a situation that helps you to talk with your child about what might have been done differently So this is a way, I think, that organizes a very large and diffuse literature and sometimes a very confusing literature and and helps to say, you know, where does attachment fit in? Where does coercion theory, reinforcement theory work in, behavior modification? Where does modeling come in? It kind of draws them all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think one of your key points was that parents' responses need to appropriately match the domain the child's operating exactly. in. Can you, can you help us to understand what does that actually mean? Well, it means that you don't comfort a child if they're in the control domain. It means that mm-hmm. if they're in a situation where they're being exposed to a variety of different kinds of models that you want to choose 
the situation more carefully for them. So you might, I mean, parents try to live in neighborhoods where they feel their children will go to schools, where they will see people engaging in the kinds of actions that the parents value. If you're in the reciprocity domain, then you don't march into the control domain or you don't explain why you can't be bothered or don't feel like going along with the child's request. So it's matching up what's appropriate in each domain. Mm -hmm. And that we hypothesize leads to reduced stress in parenting because the matching of the child's state and the parent's state leads to more effective parenting? It certainly, it should lead to more effective parenting. And I, I think what this does is, is to underline the importance of other things other than discipline and control. Mm-hmm. So, and to say that there's also more than just attachment and, and attachment and control are, have been the two major areas, I guess, that researchers have been involved in and that parents hear about. But there are these other ways of helping children learn values that probably are much more positive in the, uh, in mm-hmm. the long run. Yeah. Okay. And so that actually leads me into thinking about how our culture influences the values that we want to imbue in our children. And so I'm thinking specifically of the highly individualized nature of American culture, (laughs) as well as uh, what I perceive as an unfortunate focus on thinness and beauty for girls and stoicism and manliness for boys. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on how reasonable do you think it is to instill values in our children that run counter to the predominant messages that our culture sends? Well, I think there are universal values. So essentially, all cultures have the same values, more or less. There's a Israeli psychologist, Shalom Schwartz, who's studied value hierarchies in 50, 60, 80 different countries. And always finds essentially the same thing. And that is that not harming others or helping others are the most important values. Again, from an evolutionary perspective, that makes good sense. We survive if we don't get into altercations with other people. We survive if we assist other people when they need help, because then they're obviously going to reciprocate. Now, I know we don't always do well in these areas, and but these ultimately are the most important, endorsed as the most important values, even if they're not always manifested in people's behavior. The least important values are those that have to do with power and achievement, and I guess beauty. Really? Uh, to use your example. Absolutely. And hmm. the people, because these values depend on extrinsic motivation again. Mm-hmm. You know, power is something that you get because other people admire you. Or fear you. <laughs> or fear you. That Yes, that's right. Whereas concern for others 
not harming others. They come from inside. They don't don't depend on other people rewarding you for them. So mm-hmm. certainly this is Schwartz's argument about why they're called benevolence and universalism, uh, fancy terminology. But uh, they uh, really encompass concern for others, which pays off in the long run. People who value universalism and benevolence, for example, are happier. There are studies indicating that Mm. they are happier Mm -hmm. than people who value power and achievement. It's like the, you know, the person who owns, who is worth hundreds of billions of dollars is not much happier because he just made another few billion. (laughs) Whereas feeling that you've made a difference or that you've helped somebody or that you've improved the world in some way does give you a feeling of internal satisfaction. And the data suggests that is the case. Yeah, I agree with that point. But what I'm thinking of is, you know, we tell our children, you need to do well in school, you need to get A's in school. And the reason you need to do that is so that you can go to college. And the reason you need to do that is so you can get a good job, and you can earn a lot of money, and you can buy a house and a car. And (laughs) And there you've got, that's right. And and people can say, or aren't you an impressive person? Right. If it's good to go to school and to achieve and go to college, so you can get a job, that will make you feel fulfilled, mm-hmm. not that will get make you lots of money, but that will make you fulfilled and doing what you want to do, then this is going to be a much happier child than the child who's told we have to get you into the best daycare because that's the only way you're going to get into a good <laughs> school, which will then mm-hmm. get you into an Ivy League university, which will then help you become famous and rich not not as good they're not as happy yeah so as we kind of wrap up here i'm thinking you know how much of it is important that our children figure this stuff out for themselves so the behaviorists would say we should just reward the behavior that we want and punish the behavior we don't call it done (laughs) Um, but the self-determination theorists argue that we should i'm going to quote minimize the child's perception of external control so as to promote the child's feelings that they're making a choice for themselves But people like Alfie Cohn, who we've mentioned already, among others, have argued for the value of allowing the child to not just perceive that they aren't being externally controlled, but to actually develop these values for themselves through parents offering opportunities to care for others and emphasizing perspective taking. And I think that this potentially does differ by culture, maybe in collectivist cultures where there's less emphasis on deciding what values you want to follow because you just follow the values that the broader culture uses. But I'm curious about your thoughts on what seems to me to be kind of a sliding scale where, you know, on on one far end, we just tell children what to think. And then moving over towards the middle, we try and get them to think it, but make them think it was their idea. (laughs) And then over on the other side, supporting them in developing these ideas for themselves. What do you think is a, a productive way to move forward on that? Well, this is why I like the guided learning and the group participation domains so much. Mm -hmm. In the guided learning, remember I said that it has to be scaffolded, the discussion. It has to be a discussion with and not an information session. (laughs) And so what happens is, in this case, 
is that eventually the child reaches the point where they've internalized the value, they've taken it over, they've constructed it. There's a difference Mm -hmm. between transmitting values and children constructing them. So a parent has helped the child to construct a particular value. And in that case, I I think this is at the end of of your continuum. The child has really taken over and this value as their own. They behave in accord with that value because that is the, they see that as the right and proper way to do things. The group participation domain is, again, you see somebody doing something. Then you have to sit down and figure out why was that a good thing or a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have a parent telling you you mustn't do that because instead you have the child figuring out what's going on and, and why this might be desirable. So I think those two domains particularly are useful for leading to, to willing compliance, to internalization or taking over of the value as your own. In the control domain, it's, it's a bit trickier because it's sometimes difficult to provide enough scaffolding or enough autonomy support and this is what the some people talk about is not forcing children to do things but to give them choice for example yeah to take their perspective so that you can understand how you should handle the situation so they don't feel forced so in the control domain you can get internalization as well So I absolutely agree that the end of it is the child thinking, I'm doing this not to please mother or to avoid my father's wrath Mm -hmm. or to get paid or to get people saying how wonderful I am. I'm doing it because it's right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I think, the goal with respect to socialization and taking over the the values of our culture. And you mentioned something about culture and saying you thought it was less important as a function of culture. Mm-hmm. I don't think even in more so-called collectivist cultures, people still value, still take over values as their own. It may be that the value is that the family group is really important and that we have to respect our elders. And that's a little different from the emphasis in our culture on autonomy. But I think still those particular values are arrived at through a process of construction. Mm. So I don't, I don't think these notions are just specific to our Western way of thinking. Okay. Good to know that we're not always weird. (laughs) Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for helping us think through this. I I know it's a a bit of a tricky topic to kind of get one's head around. At least it was for me when I was thinking through these issues. So I appreciate your willingness to let us poke at it. (laughs) That's lots to talk about. Yes, there certainly is. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. And so listeners can find the references for all the studies we've mentioned today, as well as all the ones that I read uh, for this episode at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash goals. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.